0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing
0: world. On today's show, author Isabella Allende discusses her new novel, In the Midst of Winter. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot introduces PW's Person of the Year.
1: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. There's very little happening. Mm. Uh, We've got only one new book on the fiction list this week. It's at number nine. Uh, We don't have a review of it. It's The Whispering Room by Dean Kuntz, the second book in the Jane Hawk series. And uh, Dean Koontz has been writing thrillers, I think, about since I was born. I certainly remember being a big fan of his around when I was (laughs) a a teenager. And um, this is uh, a Dean Koontz thriller. It's uh, Jane Hawk is his series heroine and uh, first appeared in The Silent Corner. And according to the publisher, this book has Jane continuing her battle against a murderous conspiracy Mm. Uh, and uh, you know this is just one of those if this is the kind of thing you like then you'll like this thing right And um, that's really all that's happening in fiction. Okay. Um, Yeah, I I think not a lot of people were buying a lot of books over Thanksgiving, not a lot of new books coming out over Thanksgiving. Next week, I expect we'll see a return to form.
0: Well, nonfiction, I think people were gaming. And by that, I mean uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Our number one book is Xanathar's Guide to Everything. We don't review books like this, but the uh, publicity material says explore a wealth of new rules, options for both players and dungeon masters, and the supplement for the world's greatest role-playing game.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, I was yeah. not expecting to see a Dungeons & Dragons book sell 44,000 copies. I've also been into that <laughs> since I was a teenager. <laughs> so I guess everything old is new again.
0: Uh, well, yeah. So anyway, it's, it's uh, always always a, a fun surprise to see what pops up on top there, especially, yeah, with 40 some thousand copies. Not too bad. Number three, Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World by Tim Ferriss. We don't have a review of this book, but when these are, this is advice from a hundred of the world's uh, best, according to the publicity material. So when facing life's questions, who do you turn to for advice? And well, uh, uh, Tim Ferriss has uh, everything right here in this book. Number 12, we're jumping up a simplified life, tactical tools for intentional living um, by Emily Lay. Lay, uh, who's the author of Not Grace, Not Perfection, here nudges readers to streamline their life in the straightforward self-help guide and personal planner. We say that fans of Marie Kondo will find this uh, welcome book for further tips on simple living. And at number nineteen, Dear Evan Hansen through the window by Stephen uh, Levinson. Uh, this is a behind-the-scenes look at uh, kind of the definitive guide of the uh, of the Broadway musical Dear Evan Hansen. So that's at uh, number 19. Number 23, Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win. Uh, We don't have a review of this, but this is a new edition of uh, an older book. So um, that's all we have uh, on nonfiction.
1: Not a lot going on. No.
0: No, that's it. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly
0: Radio. Uh, Next up, Isabel Allende tells us about building novels out of true stories. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today we've got Isabel Allende on the line. Her new book is In the Midst of Winter. Hi, Isabel. I'm so glad you could join us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me in the program.
1: So this is, uh, I believe this is your 19th novel, if we're not mistaken. And, uh, you follow the lives of Richard Bowmaster and his coworker and tenant, Lucia Maraz, uh, who is a visiting professor at New York University. Tell us about these two New Yorkers, uh, or New York residents and, uh, what's going on between them.
2: Well, they both live in a brownstone, uh, in Brooklyn. The, the the house is owned by Richard, and he rents the basement apartment to Lucia, who who is visiting for a year or, or six months at the university. She likes him. She's 62 years old, alone. She has gone through hell. And she she's now finding herself in a new city with a new job and interested in, in him. But he's una- unavailable. He's a very guarded man who has a traumatic past and lives in a very safe environment. He has his job, his house, four cats, he's vegan. He's insured against life, against everything, except mm-hmm. his bad memories, of course, and nightmares. And so they, are, um, they see each other often, but they're not really friends until something happens that brings them together.
1: And is that uh, the the introduction of a young Guatemalan refugee into their lives?
2: Yes. She's an undocumented young woman and all this happens in 3 days, the 3 days of the storm, the blizzard that hit uh, the state of New York last year in January. Mm. And the book begins the book begins with a quote by Albert Camus that says, "In the midst of winter, I finally found within me an invincible summer. And that's the whole idea of the book. The, the the snowstorm is a real winter, but it's also a metaphor for what's going on in the lives of these people who are living in a sort of emotional winter. And uh, an event happens, this young Guatemalan woman happens in their lives, and that brings out a lot of stuff that was there under the surface, and eventually an an invincible summer also. Everything changes for them. The young woman is called Evelyn Ortega, and she has taken her employer's car to go to the pharmacy in the middle of the blizzard. And Richard, who has taken his cat to the vet and doesn't have very good eyesight, he he rear-ends her. And uh, it's a minor, minor traffic accident, and he doesn't give much, much thought to it. But that night, the woman comes to his house, terrified. And uh, and he realizes that there is much more going on than the, than the minor accident. And because he doesn't understand very well what she's talking, he's confused. He's sort of scared also. He calls Lucia, who is in the basement, to come and help. And so the three of them find themselves in the kitchen of the brownstone. And they start sharing their lives and then they find out that the young woman is terrified not because of the accident, but because she has a body in the trunk of the car.
0: Wow. Tell <laughs> wow. us tell us a little bit about <laughs> Lucia. Uh tell us a little bit about her background. And this is someone who's spoken with uh Evelyn to, to to try and calm her. Um uh tell us a little bit about where she came from?
2: Lucia is Chilean and uh, she belongs to the generation that was particularly affected by the military coup of 1973. Uh, in Chile, we had a, a government of the left that was topped by, uh, over, uh, overthrown by a military coup, propped up by the CIA, by the way. And um, many Chileans w- were arrested, many disappeared torture was systematic and um and many people left and so she's one of the of the exiles she her, her brother has disappeared he was arrested and never found found again and so she ends up leaving the country she lives in exile and eventually when we had democracy again in Chile in 1989 uh, she returns and she becomes a, a journalist and a writer and she researches the the human rights um, violations during the time of the dictatorship. The dictatorship lasted 17 years. And so she becomes an expert in this, and that's why she's invited to NYU to lecture. And she's a feisty woman who has had a difficult life. She lived in exile. She she married the wrong man. She divorced. She has a divorce behind her. Cancer. Her mother died. So there's a lot going on in her life. But she sort of... Um, Very stable and and, and strong and still has the idea that she can have romance in her life and she can have love. Very different from Richard, who is a person who doesn't want to hear about anything that might move, move anything in his life.
1: You weave a lot of culture and politics and history into this novel. Obviously, you've mentioned the Chilean coup, um, going all the way back to Nazi prison camps. How do you decide which historical elements to bring into each of your stories?
2: I think of what could have happened in the lives of the characters that were the highlights in their lives, for example, uh, um, a couple of years ago, I published a novel called *The, the Japanese Lover*, and there I have two—the the, the protagonists are in their eighties. So I, I thought, what happened in the eighty years of these people's lives? And of course, the most important thing would have been the war, because the woman is Jewish and the man was Japanese. Mm. So she would have she would have run away from the Holocaust, and he would have been in an in an internment camp in the United States. So the same in this case, I think, okay, I have th- three characters. Two of them are in their 60s, and they, they are both related to Latin America somehow. What could have happened in their lives that was really important? If the woman was Chilean, like me, the most important thing that turned her life around was a military coup. So the decision to, what will I bring to the novel, is what is important to determine the the personality of each one of the characters,
0: and uh, Richard Bowmaster, uh, his I guess it was his father who uh, survived the Nazi prison camps. Um, tell us about that was, that intersection.
2: He was not in a prison camp because he escaped in time, and he was helped by by people. He escaped uh, first from Germany, then from France. Then from then, then he ended up in Portugal, and in each instance, he was helped by some good soul that risked his or her life to help someone who was in danger, a Jew in danger. So he was for this man who is called Joseph is forever grateful, and he feels that he has to pay back to the world what he received. So he's always interested uh, in refugees and and in immigrants. And he instills in, in Richard, in my character, those values. So um, when Evelyn Ortega shows in his house, he cannot—he uh, cannot ignore the fact that, I mean, the, the voice of his father in his head, telling him that his first responsibility is to help those who are displaced.
1: And that brings us to the present day with the current plight of undocumented immigrant workers, the constant fear of deportation. How does that get woven into this historical tapestry? What are the resonances between the past and the present?
2: Because they're similar. I mean, we are talking about people who have to leave their place of origin. They have to escape to save their lives. And that happened in Nazi Germany. It happened in Chile. And it's happening in Central America today. Uh, the case of Evelyn Ortega is one of the cases I have in my foundation. Uh, we, we work with, with organizations that work in the field with refugees and immigrants. So cases like the, the case of Evelyn Ortega, we have many. I didn't have to make it up, unfortunately. She comes from Guatemala, one of the three countries of the triangle of the north. El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Uh, where I mean, countries that are taken over by narcos, by by gangs. The terrible MS13, the, the worst gang in 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 the region. 80,000 members in this gang that commi- commit atrocities, and nobody can stop them. Uh, corrupt police, inefficient governments, uh, and also a past history of 30 years of genocide against the indigenous people by the military and the government of their own countries. So all that forces people out. Nobody leaves their home, their family, their language, everything that is familiar to them, unless they are desperate. They're running for their lives, or they're they're running away from extreme violence or extreme poverty.
0: And tell us about Evelyn Ortega. She she had a rough life in Guatemala uh, until she came to the U.S.,
2: She's no exception. There are many people like her. Uh, so it's very easy to, to research the, the, the journey from Guatemala to, to, um, to the border and then into the United States because it happens every day to thousands of people. Uh, she, um, her brothers, one of her brothers got involved with a gang, with the MS-13 and he was assassinated and then there was um, revenge for the whole family. We don't know what the brother did to deserve such a punishment, but the whole fam- family is punished. The other brother is killed, too. And then Evelyn suffers brutal uh, aggression, and she's also raped. So she needs to get out of the country because they, th- they thought she was dead, but she's not, so she's a witness of what happened. She needs to get out. And then the whole journey begins with the coyotes, the, the smugglers, with human trafficking, with corrupt police, with the bandits that are that that are all along the 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 way, starting in Chiapas all the way to the border, they have to fend with bandits. So um, that is her plight, and then she ends up in the United States because she's looking for her mother. She hasn't seen her mother for eight years, which is also something that happens to to a lot of these kids. Three years ago, sixty-eight thousand minors cross the the border illegally, looking for their parents. So this is a very common thing.
1: And all these threads come together in New York City. Why did you choose that location uh, and then later upstate New York as the place to bring these characters together?
2: Because I was, when I started thinking of the novel, I was in Brooklyn. Uh, Every year I rent a house in Brooklyn to bring my family, because my daughter is in-law's family. They're all Italians from Sicily. (laughs) They live in Brooklyn. And so they all get together for Christmas, for the holidays. And so we come all the way from California, where we live, to Brooklyn. And we were there. It was the end of 2015, after Christmas. And and they, they asked me, what are you going to write next year? Because I always start my books on January 8th. And I said, I don't know. And <laughs> then everybody started giving me ideas. And somebody said, write about this house. And I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. A brownstone in Brooklyn is always a nice setting, isn't it? And um, and then somebody said, well, this, many of these houses belong to the mafia. And somebody else said, one of my schoolmates was the daughter of one of these mafia guys. And they found a, a body in the trunk of the car. Yeah, so I thought, oh, a, a body in the trunk of a car—anybody can write a book with that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that—that's why I ended up doing it in Brooklyn.
0: And then you moved up to upstate New York.
2: Yeah, because I needed to get rid of the body. <laughs> <It's> funny, <laughs> but, you know, it's really funny because I emailed all my friends and acquaintances, and I said, "How do you get rid of a body? The body is frozen in a car, but it will defrost in three days." So. What would you do? You won't believe it, but everybody answers. Everybody had an idea. So that that means that everybody has thought about it. Everybody (laughs) has thought about killing somebody, maybe a relative. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but don't go
1: away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Isabel Allende, author of In the Midst of Winter. So I love this idea of you crowdsourcing ideas for your books. Is that how it always happens? How everybody's crowding around you, offering suggestions?
2: No, 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 no. And, and people offer me suggestions all along the year. And I pick up some of those that resonate with me. And in the case of this book, uh, the, the, the idea of talking about uh, an undocumented refugee is part of what I do in my foundation. So it really resonated with me. Also the character of, of Lucia, because in many ways her life resembles mine and many of her personality traits are also mine. I'm bossy. I'm vain. I'm romantic. I'm like her in that, in, in, in some aspects. And then the, the character of Richard looks very much like my brother. I didn't have to invent much. He's also vegan. He has four cats. The same thing.
0: <laughs> so uh, you'd mentioned that you start writing your book every, uh, on, on January 8th. Um, why is that?
2: Well, uh, because I started my first book on January 8th, 1981. And it was a lucky book, The House of the Spirits. So I started my second novel on the same day just for Kabbalah. And then the third and the fourth, and now I, I, I can't change it. It became a, a, a matter of discipline more than superstition, because I really need to organize my life. I have a busy life that, that pulls me out all the time, and I need to carve time, silence, and solitude to write. And I can only do that if I have a day to start, and everybody around me respects that, they know that I'm not available starting on January 8th.
1: So, this is about organizing other people as much as about organizing yourself.
2: Organizing my, my, my team at the office, the foundation, everything. So, and I have a, a, my, a lot of help, my, a lot of people around me who help me very much. That's why I can do it.
0: So what is your writing uh, life like? What is your writing schedule like? I know you have foundation, and you said you've got a lot of – you're busy. How do you well, take I, the I time?
2: Well, try, I try not to be busy with traveling, with promoting books, with um, social life when I'm writing. So for several months, I'm very introverted. And then there is another Time in my life, usually every two years, when I have to do a book tour to promote a book. And then it's all out there being exposed. Uh, But that doesn't happen often. And while I'm doing that, of course, I cannot write. So I divide my time between researching for the next book and then uh, locking myself away to write and I'm much better in the morning, so I get up very early and I write for as long as I can. And then there is a period when I have to edit correct and then check the translation into English. And then the cycle starts again. What is your
1: relationship with your translators like? Uh, you have said that uh, you had a regular translator, Margaret Sayers-Payton, for many years, and you said that, that the two of you almost had a psychic connection, but... Uh, she's yes. she's retired. So, uh, what's what's your relationship like with your new translator? How do you work together?
2: I have had several different translators, all very good. They are chosen by the publisher. They they give me options, and um, and usually I I feel that the translators improve the book, uh, not only because they do a very good job, but also because they give me the chance to read line by line carefully with the filter of another language and the distance of time. Because when I'm writing, I'm so into the book that I can't see it clearly. And then uh, there's a moment when I just give up and send it to my agent, and then it gets published. Uh, But when I read the translation, I can see problems that I didn't check in Spanish, I didn't see in Spanish. Sometimes that gives me also time to correct the Spanish.
0: So is this process? Uh, I, I should ask. Do you write in Spanish mostly, and and how, at what point do you give it? If that's the case, do you give it to someone to translate? You had said that uh, you you spend uh, your you know after your writing uh, the the initial writing you'll go over and edit and go over translations. Uh, how often are you going back and forth?
2: When I finish the book, I send and I think it's finished. I send it to my agent. And they offer it to my publishers. Now, for the first time in the United States, I have an editor that speaks Spanish, Johanna Castillo, so she can read the manuscript in Spanish. And we can talk about the manuscript during that time of editing and correcting, which I couldn't do before because my previous editors did not speak Spanish. Um, And then she orders the translation, Johanna orders the translation, and then they send me every 40 or 60 pages so that I can read it. And usually the translation is perfect. Sometimes humor is not missed, but changed or, and not, not because they don't get the humor or the irony, but because some things that seem funny in Spanish don't work in English. They are politically incorrect. So that needs to be toned down or changed a little.
1: And you also mentioned doing a lot of research for your books. What's your research process like, and how has it changed over the long time that you've been writing with the, the advent of the Internet, um, shifts in, in libraries? Uh, how, how has that worked out for you? Well,
2: before it was all in libraries. And, uh, or if you were lucky enough to find someone who was an expert, you, by interviewing that person. But I have written several historical novels that have required a lot of studying, especially one that is called Island Beneath the Sea, that is about the slave revolt in Haiti 200 years ago. I researched four years for that book, and part of it was in French. So it was very hard, also because it was a very complicated historical time. Um, but now the Internet helps a lot. The Internet helps to, to get the the... the the, the events, and then you have to be very careful and check that they are correct, because sometimes they are not. Hmm. Uh, I find that most the most interesting uh, research is usually letters or documents written at the time of the event. In case I cannot talk talk to the, to a person who has lived them, in the case of um, of this book, everything is very contemporary. All happens last year in January. To people who are in who are alive today, so it's easy to research. For example, the, the, I had to research the journey from Guatemala all the way to the United States for this girl, for Evelyn. Uh, there are not only books and documentaries. There is an expert, Sonia Nazarios, and about the situation in Guatemala. There is also an expert, Beatriz month So I talk to them, and they they give me the information and what I need. I, they tell me how to get the information also.
1: On your website, you say that when you accept as a writer that fiction is lying, you become free and you can do anything. But here you're talking about a, a real dedication to the truth, to historical accuracy, to representing the stories of real people. How do you, how do you balance that? And what are the, the limitations that you've put on your freedom to lie with your fiction?
2: I feel that if I am... As accurate as possible with the facts, I can create fiction around them. For example, um, I can, in, in, in the case of this book, I did not invent Evelyn Ortega, but let's say that I, I had invented her. I, I cannot create a character that is believable to the reader if all the facts about what happens with the, with the gangs in Guatemala, about the economic, political, and social situation in that country, about the, the journey, about the, the border patrol, about the immigration laws, about if I am not very accurate with that, the character is unbelievable. So the kind of book I, I write requires that, that historical and geographical accuracy. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So you can, con- you can construct this pyramid of what we call fiction, that, it's really imagination, and, and but it, it doesn't it, it doesn't sustain itself if it's not basically true.
0: You also say by this lying and fiction, you discover little things that are true about yourself, about life, about people, and about how the world works. What, what are some of the truths you've discovered?
2: One of the truths that I have discovered is that if I can connect one on one. I can get the personal story of one person, my, my heart changes. I may have an idea about some, some situation or someone until I meet the person that has lived through that, and looking at that person in the eye, I can hear the story. Um, in, in the case of Evelyn Ortega, there are many people who think of immigration in terms of numbers, abstract numbers, 11 million undocumented people, um, 68,000 illegal immigrants, minors. Those are numbers until you get to see one person. And then you see, you, you place a name, a face, a story, and then everything changes. That, that's why when I research, I try to find for a model for my character. When I wrote a book, a crime novel, the only crime novel I've written in my life, called Ripper. I needed a soldier and I know nothing about the military and I have all kinds of prejudice against the military because of what happened in Chile. So the character I would have created would have been a caricature of with all my prejudice. I looked for a, I I looked for someone that would be the the model and I was so lucky that I found a Navy seal that had been in the team of the Osama bin Laden thing and he was willing to talk to me so i went for 3 days to washington and and spent time with him looking at him hearing his story but also observing his mannerisms uh, i went he invited me to his apartment to show me some some photographs and medals and stuff and i was more interested in the apartment how spare it was how there was nothing there and what how was the bathroom what did he have in his cabinet in his bathroom cabinet, that kind of stuff is what, what gives me an idea of, of a person and the soldier becomes a real human being and I can connect with him at a level that I could not if I had not met him.
0: So in ways, meeting the person allowed you to, to, to put down your, your uh, preconceived ideas about what a soldier yes. was.
2: Yes. Right now in this country, when there, there's no dialogue, when people are so divided that we, we, we do not want to hear what the other side has to say, I wish we could just sit down one-on-one and, and talk to each other and see why we think the way we think and why we act the way we act. And do you have any plans
1: for this upcoming January 8th? It's not so long away.
2: Yeah, I have a I have a plan and I, um, I've been researching the whole year, researching for that. And in this case, nobody gave me the idea, uh, so I, I didn't have to uh, to gather the family. And what can I write about? <laughs> you know, I had an idea.
0: <laughs>
1: we can't I, wait to find out what it is.
2: Well, I don't talk much about what I'm going to write because everything changes in the process. I may have an idea. You know, when I started writing that book about the slave revolt in Haiti, my previous, my first idea was to write about the Pirates of the Caribbean. And then I ended up in New Orleans and from there to Haiti. And that's how I ended up writing about Haiti. Hmm.
1: We've been talking with Isabel Allende, and you can find her book In the Midst of Winter in stores right now. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Rose. Thank you, Mark. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about PW's 2017 Person of the Year. Stay tuned.
3: I'm John McGregor, author of Reservoir 13, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Editorial Director Jim Elliott is here to tell us all about PW's Person of the Year and a few notables. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. How are you?
3: Hi, Rose.
1: Hello. So uh, tell us the news. Who is it? Who is it?
3: Uh, Without further ado, it's uh, Carolyn Reedy, who's the CEO and president of Simon & Schuster. She's wrapping up, and it's hard to believe. I remember writing about when she started. Uh, be her tenth year will be uh, wrapped up come January first. She took over for Jack Romanis on uh, January first, twenty 2008. And as we talked about in our interview, uh, she ran smack into the recession. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a rough time.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. It was as we kind of note in our story, she ran into the recession uh coupled with uh, the digital disruption, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, in its heyday in 2008, 2009, 2010. And since that time, it's been a generally slow growth uh, sales environment. But, you know, through all of that, uh, Simon & Schuster has remained a profitable company. It's, you know, its sales have kind of gone down a little one year, gone up a little bit the next year. But be that as it may... Uh, she's kept uh, she's kept Simon & Schuster safely profitable and has also won some awards along the way. You know, just in November, Jessamyn Ward's thing on Buried Sing won a uh, National Book Award. Right right so wow. uh, they 're not just doing it with uh crass commercial titles that <laughs> <laughs> oh, Though,
1: you know if they are, then no shame to them uh, <laughs> Simon and Schuster launched a science fiction imprint very recently the the saga imprint right. after a long time of not having one um so they're uh, they're they 're enjoying some of that commercial fiction too.
3: right right, right, well, you have to have that, but it 's interesting you mention imprints because. One of the things that you know makes uh, Carolyn stand out a little bit is that whatever growth Simon & Schuster has experienced has not come via acquisition. I mean, we had Brian Murray was our person of the year a few years ago, and that was hot on the trails of uh, acquiring Harlequin. And a few years before that, they bought Thomas Nelson. So Harper really, you know emerged as this number two player here. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to mention that Penguin and Random House merge to create what they've become. Uh, Hachette's been uh, buying uh, a number of different companies along the way. But the only company um, in the 10 years that Carolyn's been here that uh, SNS has acquired was uh, Adams Media, mm. which is uh, relatively small, but a good independent. And they right. b- bought that only last year. But what they've done, as uh, Rose uh, mentioned, they've started lots and lots of new imprints. Saga being one. A few years ago, they did 37 Inc., which they did to try to uh, bring some more diversity into their title program as well as into the staff itself. They did Keywords, which was um, focused on YouTube stars when it first came out and had some big hits right out of the shoot. They've got also Simon 451. Mm-hmm. So they've done a lot. And this year, um, they released the first titles and a new children's imprint called Solomon reads, which was aimed at, uh, reaching Muslim children's and families. Wow. So, um, you know, that's really the way they've gone, uh, looking for internal growth and it's, you know, it's, uh, met with, uh, some success. And, uh, what about the, uh, the, the four, uh, mentions? The four mentions. All right. We can really go on to that. Uh, we, have, we have quite a, I think it's an eclectic group, I would say. Becky Anderson is uh, one of them. And Becky Anderson is the co-owner of Anderson's Bookshop um, over the, over there in Naperville in Illinois. And as we say in our little write-up of it, well, lots of people have complained about the Trump administration policies. She's trying to do something about it. Mm. And to that end, she's running for the uh, Democratic nomination in March uh, to go up against the Republican incumbent out there. Mm. Um, so, you know, she's sort of taking the, book, the bull by the horns. Right. Um, she's, has some ex- she's on the city council over there. She's been an ABA board president for a couple of years. You know, and she's you know running on the program of, uh, you know, there is such thing as climate change we do need to invest in education and literacy uh you know we sh- the tax uh large corporations don't need any really huge tax cuts so those are some issues that i think some of us in this industry uh maybe could uh, get behind sure Uh, Sort of keeping in the political realm, but not necessarily the reason we picked this person, is uh, Margaret Atwood. Okay. You know, Margaret's been around for a long time, and according to uh, a BookNet survey uh, this year, she was the most best-known author in Canada, but that's not why uh, we chose her. Um, You know, she was a huge hit at BookCon for for a number of reasons, Uh, new graphic novels, and and her Handmaid's Tale, um, you know... Was becoming quite something of a sensation, although right. it was published, uh, you know, a number of years ago. Um, and of course it hit its peak interest when Hulu released its 10 part uh, series, right. uh, on, on their streaming service. And it really turned Margaret into sort of something of a cultural icon. Um, sure. I think a lot of the people who were taking part in de- demonstrations had, uh, lines from the novel on their placards when they were protesting and stuff. And I think in the sales of the books themselves showed um, what kind of interest there was in this topic. Uh, the paperback edition sold over 500,000 copies mm. and eBooks over 736,000 copies.
1: Wow. wow. So,
3: um, you know, people are really interested to see what you had to say and kind of try to figure out how it reflects what's going on today. So that's number Great. two. Wonderful. Um, number three is probably not quite as sexy. Ray Griffin is a CEO, um, of Follett Corp. Um, now Follett, you know, is a distributor, uh, to schools, libraries, um, that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, they bought Baker and Taylor, which was, you know, one of two large trade wholesalers. And then last year, they followed that up with what I thought was two pretty aggressive uh, moves. They started uh, using Baker and Taylor. They started Baker and Taylor Publishing Services um, because... There's been a lot of cons- consolidation, as we've talked about on the show, um, among the distributors. So lots of independent publishers in particular, you know, eager to have another option. So um, they announced this uh, October 2nd, and they brought on board uh, somebody well-known in the publishing circles. And we've probably mentioned him on the show before, Mark Sukumal, mm-hmm. who had run IPG and then – um was running the Perseus distribution arm of Perseus before uh, Ingram mm-hmm. bought that company. So now Mark will be uh, set up to, uh, you know, go in competition with Ingram and all the other distributors, right. including the, um, the, the trade houses that have their own distribution businesses. But like I said, um, it's been a lot of consolidation and a lot of the independent houses sort of wondering, you know, if you don't like... IPG, where right. can we go? If we don't like Ingram, where can we go? If we don't like NBN, where can we go? I mean, those are really the three big independent wholesale or distributors that are around. You know, Random House, Simon, Hachette are all, you know, trying to expand theirs, but that's kind of a different ball game. So so that I thought was notable. Then The day after that, they announced that they were going to set up what they call Follett Book Fairs. Um, and these are script School book fairs, who most people probably know, are completely (laughs) dominated by Scholastic, Mm -hmm. um, who hasn't had a competitor in I don't know how long. But Fala thinks that they have the resources and sort of a different uh, take on things. So they started this year, I think, going into the eighth and ninth grades. And then over the course of the years, they hope to expand it beyond, um, you know, beyond those grades into. Both high schools and you know into some younger younger grades, so you know for for Griffin's uh, you know sort of leadership and in getting into two new areas that I think you know publishers certainly welcome options. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, we gave him a shout out, and then last on the list is uh, Jeff Shotts, uh, Gray Wolf executive editor, and. We chose him because Grey Wolf just does so well in poetry <laughs> that 's true and, and and in general non fiction as right. well in fiction
0: I mean they just got such a strong list that in especially their their poetry showing up on on um notable lists everywhere i mean even best selling lists
3: right right, and, you know, and this year, I think they had three of the top of the ten long listed uh, poetry uh, nominees were from uh were from Grey Wolf, I think two finalists. I mean, they didn't win, but they've had winners in the past. Right. Um, they've had a lot of winners in other different uh, categories, a couple of Pulitzers. Um, I think some, some person even won the Nobel that shots at it. It's, so, uh, considering how small the list is, um, the way they've been able to, to produce these really quality poetry right. and nonfiction titles, you know, deserves, that uh, deserves some recognition. Even though, th- three years ago, uh, Fiona McRae, who runs the whole place, was a notable. But yeah. But this year i are still doing you know, good work then. You're right. You're and then this work. is
0: we're focusing on poetry, this one. So
3: Right, yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it was really notable when you looked at how they could place they had three, I like could we said, on the long list this mm-hmm. year and they had three last year. Yeah. So it's not a fluke. Yeah. No, exactly. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Jim.
1: Thank you very Looks much Jim. like a Jim.
3: great list. Yeah. Yeah, but well, we had fun putting it together. And we'll see what happens next year. All right.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show.
3: Thanks, Rose.
1: And now a final word from our sponsors.
0: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Join us next week for another deep diving author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
1: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at slash PW Radio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net.